Thank you to YCharts for sponsoring today's episode. I am joined today by Michael Erickson, President and CEO of the Chicago Federal Home Loan Bank, and Dan Siciliano, Chair of the Council of Federal Home Loan Banks. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Jack. Thanks for inviting us. Michael, how about you start off? How would you describe the role of the federal home loan banks within the American banking system? Yeah, so the the Federal Home Loan Bank, uh, just by way of background, there are 11 federal home loan banks in the federal home loan bank system. The Office of Finance is an administrative agent on behalf of the federal home loan banks that issue debt on behalf of the FHLBs. Collectively, we're recognized as the federal home loan bank system. Uh, The role that we play is really a critical role in providing funding and liquidity to our member institutions. So, as a federal home loan bank, we are member-owned cooperatives. Each eleven of us each have a defined geographic district that we support. So, the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago, we have members who are chartered in the state of Illinois and Wisconsin that could be members of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago, for example. And we provide uh, funding liquidity to our our member institutions. The member institutions include commercial banks, uh, thrifts credit unions, insurance companies, community development financial institutions. And we are a stabilizing force in the U.S. financial markets. We are dependable across all economic cycles. We're stable uh, during uh, normal times and certainly uh, provide an essential form of liquidity in times of crisis, which um, were most pronounced uh, recently back in March, as well as during the COVID pandemic and also back in 2007, 2008 during the financial crisis at that time. Yes, I think people not inside the banking world, the, the general investing public, uh, maybe they think of the Federal Reserve as the primary bank regulator or lender to banks. But you know, really, and I discovered this look, looking in, into the weeds that the, the Federal Home Loan Bank lends so much more to banks. I think you know, with the discount window and bank term funding program, the Federal Reserve has maybe lent uh, a little over $100 billion, whereas just your branch, of the Chicago branch, uh, has $79 billion of uh, outstanding advances to, to, to banks. That was as of June 30th. Maybe it's, it's a little bit lower now. And you know, Dan, you uh, associated with the San Francisco uh, um, uh, uh, branch of the the federal home loan banks, and uh, you have at, at about seventy billion, um, and so and then the entire system now has has over a trillion of outstanding ad- advances. Uh, yeah, Dan, does it surprise you that federal home loan bank is kind of this overlooked corner, and you know only people in banking really talk about it that much? You know, it doesn't surprise me too much, but I'm super glad that there's a lot underway that is, you know, casting a spotlight on the federal home loan bank system. You know, it's been around since 1932. It's pretty critical, particularly to regional banks. uh, And it's done a lot. One of the features you already highlighted, I think is an important one to note, which is it has a sort of accordion nature, meaning during certain times it expands, but even during its, you know, not expanded period, you know, you you note the hundred billion dollars, you know, out by the Fed. You know, the the system had well over a hundred billion dollars, you know, at any given time if you take a snapshot over the last thirty five years, because we're kind of there all the time for members. Of course, it does increase in terms of advances during times of stress, but then it very quickly decreases. So it's actually a good time, I think, 
for people to be paying more attention to the federal home loan bank system, to ask hard questions about like, what does it do? How does it exist? You know, what are the pros and cons? And even the FHFA, the regulatory you know, supervisor of the federal home loan bank system, is reaching the conclusion of a period where it's talking about the 100 years. We're at 90 years, but they're kind of getting ready for the next 100. I think it was also just catchier. Uh, but uh, yeah, so, th- so it's a good time to talk about it. And I think there are, because of the vacuum of information up until, say, even just two or three years ago, a lot of understandable but sort of misunderstandings about how the federal home loan bank works both on the ground and theoretical. My, my favorite one is federal, like that the, the federal part of the name really sort of haunts us, right? Because the Federal Reserve is also not quite a federal agency, but our proximity to being a federal agency is much more distant. You know, we're, we're a GSE, a government sponsored enterprise. And I hope we get to talk about like how that really plays out. But uh, we have an old joke, like we're not, neither federal you know, uh, and, and we don't directly give home loans. Uh, and in a traditional sense of thinking, we're not really a bank. But for San Francisco, we do point out we're located in San Francisco. So that part's correct. Uh, but yeah, that's what I think the biggest misunderstanding is like, what are we really? Uh, and we can talk more about that. But we are a private capital co-op that since we're a GSE, you should pay a lot of attention to at a regulatory level, which happens. So a regulated, regulated agency. So GSE is government-sponsored uh, enterprise. Sponsored enterprise, yes. And yes. so let me say how I understand uh, a federal home loan bank and the system is uh, you the federal home loan banks fund themselves by issuing bonds, so short-term discounts or longer-term uh, bonds, and they use it to fund advances to fund the banking system. So when uh, banks make new loans or when bank deposits leave a particular bank, banks can tap a federal home loan bank and secure financing. And then that federal home loan bank finances itself by issuing uh, bonds to the public. So it's an intermediary between the banking system and the, the investing public. Uh, Dan, would you add any, any, anything to that? What did I miss? I'm going to have Michael expand on kind yeah. of the process of doing that because we do that through the Office of Finance and he's on that board and very you know familiar with it. I will mention one thing that you, you left out, but I, you're probably going to get to it. And that is that the banks themselves, the 11 banks, are essentially co-ops that each of the members, so the members are defined by regions and by eligible financial institution types, right? Um, each of the members buy in and have to put private capital to buy stock, and that stock is held. So the, the federal home loan banks themselves are capitalized with the money of banks, right? So the, and, and other financial institutions. And then in turn, if they ever exit, by the way, and this is sort of relevant, all they get back is that stock at par value. And and I, I point this out because there's a legitimate concern, I think, if you have a GSE, a government-sponsored enterprise, that also is tied somehow to a publicly traded, you know, enterprise that has stock that can go up and down and, you know, fluctuates because there's a lot of things that can go right and wrong in that story. And the federal home loan banks are different because the banks themselves are just co-ops where the private capital goes in and no one can make money off of the change in that stock price, because it doesn't change. It always just is exchanged and bought in at par value. But let me stop there because your description about the bond function at the global level, I think is the heart of the operations and Michael's the expert on that. Yeah, so what what I would add to that is we, we are self-capitalizing. And so the first thing is, as members borrow from the federal home loan banks, uh, they would have to buy additional stock in order to uh, support the activity that they do with the bank. 
So the advances themselves are self-capitalizing in that way. And then the in order to meet the funding demands of our members, we have access to the debt markets. So we will issue debt on a daily basis to fund the liquidity and funding needs of, of our member institutions. Our, institu- our members do have other funding alternatives as well beyond just the Federal Home Loan Bank, but we are a, a critical liquidity provider to our member institutions. And would it be fair to say that when banks require a lot of advances, as they did in March, April, and May of 2023, that can indicate uh, some financial stress within the banking system. And the opposite, when banks pay down all so some of their advances, as they did in you know, late 2020 and 2021, that's a period of uh, relaxation within the banking stress, this banking system. Yeah, the federal home loan banks, really, to go back to a previous uh, a piece of the conversation. The federal home loan banks are available to our members through all economic cycles, uh, both in, in calm markets as well as in, in times of, of of stress. And we, we saw that back in, in March where there was more liquidity pressure in, in the market environment in general. So what what's precipitated that in, in general is um, during the course of 2022, as the Fed was increasing interest rates, we did see uh, deposits leaving the uh, financial uh, system or uh, leaving our depository member institutions. In addition to that, we saw loan demand in the system still continue to increase. And typically during times of economic expansion, there is higher loan demand and our members will need uh, funding and liquidity to meet that demand. So you had a combination of those two factors that were in play. And certainly during those times, the the advances levels will increase. And we saw that leading into 2022 and and certainly into 2023. Uh, But we also provide uh, a deep level of of liquidity to our member institutions. And and we certainly saw that back uh, in March. We saw that during the COVID crisis. We saw that in 2008. Uh, so yeah, you, you see these uh, peaks and, and valleys, and the, that's the beautiful nature of the system. Is our self-capitalizing model uh, allows us to expand to meet the the needs of our members during times of of uh, higher demand, and also contract when our members don't need to borrow from the federal home loan banks, and it provides that level of protection as well to ensure that we continue to operate in a well-capitalized manner and a safe and sound manner. And what does the what is the limiting factor where banks uh, can, can tap uh, fe- their their federal home loan bank? And I'll put it on the spectrum of you know if you go and buy something you have a, you have a credit card and your credit card is pre-approved when you, when you swipe the, the bank's not approving it like it, it already is, is approved. Whereas if you want to you know borrow money to get a mortgage, you're going to have to get approved and do credit analysis. So if a bank wants to get funding from a, a federal home loan bank, can they just tap it and uh, you know can the federal home loan bank say say no? Uh, what what is the limiting factor? Is it you know the amount of collateral that they can pledge? And then Michael, I want to put it in the uh, the that question generally, but in the specific context of March of this year, when I believe the amount of advances uh, from all federal home loan banks to the banking system extended by a, a quarter of a trillion dollars in one month. So uh, that question generally, but then also specifically as the CEO and president of the uh, Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago, what was that month like? Yeah. So so in, in general, when, when you're looking at 
borrowings from the federal home loan banks. We, each one of us have uh, very robust credit risk management practices in place to ensure that um, we're monitoring the, the members themselves, the member health and, and access into the bank. We are and we operate as a secured lender uh, to our member institutions. And uh, a big piece of that is ensuring that we have uh, have a possession or priority lien to the collateral that is being pledged to us. So we do uh, a UCC filings on uh, mortgage loan mission-related collateral that is uh, eligible to be pledged. Um, and that the uh, eligibility is established by Congress and, and certainly through our regulators. But it's, it's mortgage loans, mortgage-backed securities, commercial real estate, and uh, collateral that is acceptable uh, through, through uh, statute. And we ensure that we have uh, perfected our security interest to the collateral to the extent that securities are, are pledged as collateral to the Federal Home Loan Bank. We ensure that we have possession of that collateral. So we are we are protected from, from that risk. And we'll certainly, to the extent that we have collateral protections and, and uh, that in place, we will continue to, to lend and provide uh, support to our member institutions, especially in the times when they do need liquidity. And that was most notable uh, uh, most recently in the March timeframe. Jack, can I throw in a, a point about the credit kind of approach and the discipline that the Federal Home Loan Banks bring before Michael gets the more exciting part of your question, which is what was March like? Um, and that is, you know, as it happens, I think a little known fact, the 11 banks are jointly and severally liable for their issuances. And what I mean by that is if there was any sort of a problem on one bank's issuance and their ability to meet the obligations of bondholders, the other banks are obligated to step in and cover that. And so it's a traditional joint and several liability issue. So I, I wanna point out, because I think it's so unusual, this arrangement, that the discipline that banks bring, and there are slightly different flavors of the same approach that Michael described to issuing advances their members, is incentivized even more by several things. One, a conservative regulator, but also by our attentiveness of each other's behavior around the notion that if you know any one bank had a real problem, we would have to step in. And this is this is unique, I think, in in most systems of this size. And you know, we're a security lender, right? I mean, it's just a kind of vanilla security lender. You know, we we get pledged collateral, we do UCC filings. But behind that, we also have this you know, overlay of joint and several liability, and frankly, this really strong reputation to uphold, which is never a single dollar lost on the investor side. And so there's a lot of attention to the credit side. Getting back to the, the activity in, in March, certainly March was a, a very active month for the federal home loan banks, certainly an active month from a debt issuance standpoint. So... Um, I think during the lead in to the to the most recent financial crisis during that week, uh, the federal home loan banks had issued over approximately 400 billion in in uh, discount notes and in term funding in order to meet the liquidity demands of our member institutions, which was really uh, quite remarkable for a number of reasons. But but most notably, uh, there's a lot of discussion about those institutions that had failed, but we really played a critical role in providing a stabilizing force, uh, stabilizing liquidity to 
uh, so many members in the federal home loan bank system. We have about 6,500 6, members in the system itself. And if you think about the impact the community financial institutions have in all aspects of the U.S. economy and, and rural America and the in the urban landscape as well, to think about the reach that we had in making sure that we were protecting them, protecting families, protecting Main Street America in, in relation to that and providing liquidity when it was needed most. Uh, you know, the liquidity that we're able to provide, it's, it's not a private benefit. It's a public good. And we were able to ensure that uh, these institutions were able to continue to, to thrive and, and support the communities in which they serve. And Michael, going, going back to my question, so when banks call the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago up or the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco up and they ask for a loan, do, can uh, under what circumstances can the Federal Home Loan Bank say no? Yeah, we, we would evaluate the, the member credit quality associated with the borrowing activity that they do. Um, certainly, that we have regulations that we have to follow to ensure that we are following those regulations and providing the, the funding to the member institutions themselves. Uh, and also, if a member was in a distressed state, we would work with the primary regulator as well, their primary regulator, to ensure that we would provide funding that um, that it would be, um, you know, not put undue stress on on the primary regulator as well or to the institution. So we are we're in constant contact with um, the member, the member regulators, especially if the, the member is in distress. Well, Michael, can I ask a, so just drawing from San Francisco experience, yeah, but please. I'll rely on Michael to make sure it's a generalized uh, reality. It's true also that the, we, we couldn't provide in advance if the prudential regulator, you know, had said, Hey, put on the brakes. Like we're, we're analyzing, looking at it. Like it, from my experience, the communications between the regulators and Federal Home Loan Bank is pretty robust. There's a lot of exchange of information. There's certain rules about confidentiality and the like. But certainly, in answer to your question, Jack, if a prudential regulator said, you know, we're the prudential regulator of this member of yours, and we would like you to stop advancing, or perhaps they have other restrictive guidance, my understanding is the Federal Home Loan Banks would immediately follow that lead. Is that, is there any reservation to that comment, Michael? No, there's there's no reservation at the comment. That's that's exactly how it would play out. And a, a good example is if a member has negative tangible capital. So in essence, their their asset values less than their their uh, the liabilities that they have outstanding. They have negative tangible capital. We wouldn't be lending to the the member institutions unless we had uh, consent or non objection from the primary regulator. So there are there are avenues that we would have in place. And Michael, might I, might I ask you, when you say uh, if you, FLJB wouldn't lend uh, to an institution with negative tangible uh, capital, would that include uh, unrealized losses on securities and loans? Yeah, th that would that would be the cause of the, the negative tangible capital. And, and I drew out that point in part because uh, I know, Jack, you've done some amazing interviews with former FDIC people, and we, we tend to come up recently, obviously, if you're talking like Sheila Bear or yeah. whoever. Um, but it is important to note that during all of this, you know, the last six, nine months, and obviously prior to that, if the FDIC was a relevant 
player in that story. And I'm distinguishing perhaps from like banks versus credit unions, right? It'd be a different player. And the FDIC said, hey, put on the brakes. The Federal Home Loan Bank would. Mm-hmm. Right. And and that I, I think that doesn't come out in, in the stories uh, typically, but it's important because I think that means that the Federal Home Loan Bank works cooperatively with prudential regulators. I mean, we are a private entity. We're privately funded, but we're highly regulated. And, you know, there's strict banking regulation. And I think that's one of the behaviors that is important to tease out. I, and I know people are always trying to take your shows and chart stuff out. Like one of the things you could chart out is you could look at the access to other sources of liquidity during times of stress for any given institution. And you would see that not only would the Federal Home Loan Bank, you know, you know, use of our available, you know, advances in liquidity would go up. It, the other sources of liquidity, you know, typically would go up as well. And it would only be missing if maybe something broke, right? Which is another reason they'd be tapping other sources of liquidity. And so I, I emphasize that because we are, as Michael pointed out, kind of a day in and day out partner with our members and that is enabling them to especially the regional and you know small banks enabling them to do their operations and as lots of guests on your show have said you know regional small banks constitute the heart of a lot of important functions in the united states banking system that you know most most of us wouldn't realize how important they were until they were gone right and that's you know at least why i participate in the federal home loan bank you know as a board member and the like and so, Dan, you are the chair of the Council of Home Loan Banks. So I want to know what what does the council do? Is it kind of similar to the the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve? Heavens, no. Yeah, yeah. That's a great question. Uh, I would. I am not nearly that important. Um, so it really the the chair of the Council of Federal Home Loan Banks is a coordinating coordinating entity for all the boards to be able to communicate, interact with the regulator. You know, we have uh, a, a, you know someone who heads the council, but it's really just a gathering place because if you think about it, we have this joint and several liability. So we should probably be really talking to each other with some regularity. And also the system's complex and there's a lot to learn from each other, both at the executive level, which kind of happens anyway, but certainly at the board level as well. So the council, you know, this is probably an unfair description, but it's pretty accurate. It is, you know, a coordinating entity that while it doesn't have policy power, it has convening power um, and can convene the federal home loan banks together. We don't have any policy setting authority. So each bank operates, you know, independently and is, you know, guided by its regulator. And so that's the Council of Home Loan Banks. And then can you also describe your role with the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco? Are you the, an independent director there? Or the vice Yeah, I'm an independent director. So, so as it turns out, from a corporate governance viewpoint, all the directors of all the Federal Home Loan Banks are independent from a corporate governance viewpoint. We distinguish, we have our own term of art where we say independent director means someone who's not affiliated at all with one of the member banks and member directors mean it's a director who has an independent director fiduciary responsibility, but happens to be affiliated with a member bank. So there's a certain number of spots for members and there's a certain number of spots for independent uh, directors. A lot of the independent directors, sometimes they are former academics, sometimes they're housing experts, oftentimes they're general markets experts. um, Whereas obviously the member directors tend to be credit union CEOs, bank CEOs, insurance, uh, you know, officers, that kind of thing. Yeah. So Dan, what, uh, Michael described his experience in March. What was your experience in in March, um, of of this year? Yeah. So, um, I, I like to joke, uh, I, I, I like serving on the board of the federal home loan bank of San Francisco and have been serving six years, but this was a really busy year. It's a nice, nicest way to put it. 
So I, the experience was really to see the credit box operation in, you know, in action where the board, obviously during times of stress or where there's a lot of things happening, which obviously there was in San Francisco and California, Nevada, Arizona, um, were convened to provide more real-time oversight to what, you know, the senior management is doing. But for us, that meant getting, you know, weekly reports of a working capital committee about, you know, what was happening on the ground, what the decisions were, often hearing what the regulators were telling our teams at the bank and giving them feedback. So it was busy, chaotic, hectic. But in the end, I wouldn't have known I would say this, but in the end, it was sort of reassuring. Um, and what I mean by that is things operated as expected, meaning, you know, the, the sometimes we could give advances that, you know, members wanted. Sometimes you could give some of what members wanted. And sometimes perhaps they ended up at the doorstep of the Fed. And we helped them do that. Because by the way, the mechanics of getting you know capital from the Fed isn't necessarily easy. And we are a co-op. And so we have conversations that go something like, hey, you know, maybe you should be ready to go to the Fed. And there's this stuff you got to do. It's a little bit paperworky and bureaucratic. How about we help you get ready to do that in case that's needed? And I, and I say that only because to emphasize the fact that there is kind of this cooperative ongoing nature going on. But in the end, as the dust settled, more or less, um, it was good to see everything worked as it was supposed to, at least from my viewpoint. So that was reassuring. Yeah, I would say it was reassuring, too, in, in relation to the fact that the federal home loan banks executed uh, in accordance with the mission that Congress had intended. And that was to, to ensure that we are providing liquidity to our member institutions. In, in, and we did that flawlessly. Um, I, I know that we met all of the member demands during the, the, that week. Um, and also throughout the, the month of March. And to see us execute in that way was actually re really remarkable, doing exactly what Congress had intended us to do. And Dan, you said the uh, banks were tapping the San Francisco Federal Home Loan Bank, and there was a point saying where I think you were saying, we, we can't lend anymore, can you go to the Fed? Uh, I'm going to take a guess as to the banks that that applied to, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, First Republic Bank, and, and Silvergate Bank which as of year end 2022, December 31st of last year, uh, Silicon Valley Bank had $15 billion borrowed from the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco. First Republic had $14 billion and Silvergate $4.3 billion. So uh, just under 40% of all Federal Home Loan Bank advances were to those three institutions, uh, two of which failed and one of which uh, wound down. So could you describe that experience of banks demand for liquidity was in excess of the co collateral that they could provide? So two, two things. One, you know, when I came onto the board of the Federal Home Loan Bank, uh, I had taught banking at Stanford uh, to undergraduates every few years. Uh, and then, of course, I was at the law school for a long time. And I was very surprised at the things I didn't understand directly on the ground. And one of them was the extent to which there is a lot of congressionally mandated and federal agency enforced bank secrecy. And it makes a lot of sense, but you know, I, I was surprised by how far reaching that is. And so a lot of the details I can't talk about, they will come out later. But I can say, I don't think it's right to assume that the Federal Home Loan Bank, you know, just because it's chatting with potential members about making sure they can access the Fed is actually in a constrained position where they couldn't provide advances. Let me expand on that just so that we can kind of understand it. I think that one of the critiques of the Federal Home Loan Bank system has been, hey, you know, shouldn't the Fed do all of this? And the Fed plays a certain role, 
And the federal home loan bank system plays a different role. It's private capital. It raises bonds on a market in a market and using market discipline. But, you know, the goal of the federal home loan bank is to ensure that its members can meet their liquidity needs. So part of that goal is ensuring that they've availed themselves of all of the potential sources. So I, I do want to say, you know, the in fact, I think there's been a regulatory emphasis on this. It is part of the federal home loan bank's role, at least I can speak for San Francisco, to encourage, to educate and to facilitate any member's access to a variety of liquidity sources, including the Fed. And part of our kind of above and beyond customer service is to say, hey, if you think you're going to go to the Fed, you're feeling good about it. You got all the conduits connected. There's some stuff you got to do. We can help you with that. So that's what I meant by that. I didn't mean to imply that you know there was no capacity, although I will say, and this is you know public, the Silicon Valley Bank failure is is so unique in its speed and size that you almost have to come up with new words and new names. And so that posed all sorts of challenges to all sorts of players because you had you know the start of an observation of a crisis and then the end of that moment, probably 36 to 48 hours, depending how you measure it. So I will say that I think everybody was under a tremendous amount of stress in terms of if requests came in, the ability to satisfy them, you know, just mechanically would be limited. I, I would like to point out something that Michael alluded to, but maybe we should connect the dots though. And that is the Federal Home Loan Bank system's ability to go into the capital markets, you know, with the reputation that it has and the history of, you know, no losses and its kind of positive overall approach allowed it to draw capital to fund all of this. And between the time when it did that and it needed to provide advances, you know, the banks are well capitalized, meaning the federal home loan bank system. Um, and that strong capital base allows for the ability to serve the needs of members, even, you know, without having to that very moment go into the global bond market and draw capital. And this function, I think, is one, a little bit complicated, so people don't talk about it a lot, but is a big deal, I think, from a financial stability viewpoint. You have these 11 banks, they have these good, you know, piles of capital, which they hold to be available to members. And when something happens, they can provide that capital, you know, using the rules that they have to be smart about it. And they can do so and then go and tap the global markets. They don't have to tap the global markets right away. And that allows for a lot of flexibility, which de-stresses the overall environment in banking. And Michael's like the deep expert on the ground. I'm like the theoretical expert, so I should shut up and let him expand on that if he wants to. Or Jack, you can ask a follow-up. Yeah, question. well, I, I just want to say, you know, Dan, I want you to to abide by all uh, secrecy man, you know, mandates that you 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 have to. But I, I you know, what is public is that uh, on I believe it was a Wednesday, two days before Silicon Valley Bank failed, it said it had uh, sixty-five billion dollars of available increased term borrowings, and then you know it failed two days later. And then later we learned uh, when Gregory Becker test testified. Um, he said that 42 billion of deposits were withdrawn in 10 hours. So you're, you're getting, you know, you're, you people can, you know, I, I'm, people can put put together the uh, the puzzle pieces, you know. Yeah. So, well, first, I'd love I'd love you to start trying to name what that is. People keep calling it a you know, a, a bank sprint or something. I hope you'll go with um, a meme run, which is different from a bank run, but it's up to you. I, so I think that um, that time frame says it all, right? Like there was no way for Silicon Valley Bank, I think, um, except for you said this on your podcast with one of your best guests, 
magically, if the Fed had waved its wand and imposed the program on the Wednesday night or the Thursday morning, perhaps Silicon Valley Bank would not have failed because it could have taken, you know, the collateral that it had, you know, all these securities and, you know, gotten full face value for them, not had to mark them down, not had to discount them at the Fed. Uh, and that could have made all the difference. Um, beyond that, yeah, I think what's in the public record is, you know, undisputed uh, and it doesn't doesn't make any sense for me to second guess it. I, again, to be clear, the board plays a strong role in supervising, but our job is to make sure that the bank is run in a way that it can provide advances to its members when they need it. And that includes all the members. And so Silicon Valley Bank, while interesting and dramatic, I think that's sort of the red herring in a way to the more interesting story, which is, you know, did the federal home loan banks manage to provide advances to the littler banks and the littler institutions that no one's going to write a big article about? Did they manage to raise enough capital on the global markets in order to continue funding once it had kind of fallen out of the news in April? You know, and, and then what happened after that? And that, to Michael's point, I think was pretty good news, in, including at San Francisco Bank. Yeah, I think that's it's remarkable news. During, during that time, there was a considerable amount of stress and uncertainty in the financial markets in general. And the federal home loan banks played a critical role in providing a stabilizing stabilizing force and, and support for liquidity across the entire uh, banking system, across all of our community financial institutions, our, our credit unions, and, and certainly meeting that demand. And, and we had seen that. And there was certainly during that time, there was a, a built up fear and that was the, that's the whole purpose of the federal home loan banks is to ensure that we are providing that liquidity and support uh, both in stable markets as well as in times of crisis. And, and we executed in accordance with our mission and, and did it really well. And, um, it, and also, with that being said, it was it was good to see the Fed also uh, playing the role that they need to play as well to be a backstop provider of liquidity. And that was a role that they played then, and it was a role that they played back in, in 2007 and 2008. Um, but but the federal home loan banks, we play a critical role in providing funding and liquidity to our member institutions through all economic cycles. A big thank you to YCharts for sponsoring today's episode. YCharts aims to help you achieve all your investing goals packaged into one simple solution. With industry-leading research and communication tools, you can win new business and emphasize the strengths of your investment strategies to clients and prospects. The user-friendly interface helps you save hours of time each week while discovering better, more effective investment ideas. YCharts is a fully web-based application with pre-built templates to kickstart and simplify your investment research so you can act on an idea right when the light bulb flicks on. I've gotten a tremendous amount of value out of YCharts, and I think you will too. So click the link in the description and you can start your free YCharts trial today. And what's more, if you're a new customer, you can get 15% off your initial subscription. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. There's another role too, which is tied to housing. And we haven't really talked about that, which is maybe we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about the affordable housing intersection with the federal home loan banks. But anytime there's a problem at, you know, a member bank and take Silicon Valley Bank, for example, you know, the federal home loan bank in San Francisco worked with, you know, Silicon Valley Bank afterwards and, and the successor bank, the Bridge Bank, and managed to take, there was more than a dozen ongoing affordable housing projects. Because again, the federal home loan bank typically through its members, you know, provides all sorts of funding to enhance affordable housing. And there's lots of different programs. Um, and at any given moment, 
you know, a member bank or a member institution will have several programs underway. You know, Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank, you know, were, were big and had lots of affordable housing pro- programs underway. And part of the role of the federal home loan bank in that story that doesn't really get written about, and that's okay, is that we managed to find homes for all of the affordable housing projects, right? So other member banks took them on. We helped make sure that happened. So even that kind of function, which again, I, I assume it's reasonably a footnote, but in terms of mission and functioning as we should, you know, making sure that the affordable housing components were followed through was a big deal to us anyway at San Francisco Bank. And for Sil- uh, Silicon Valley Bank in particular, how sizable as a percentage of the entire bank were those affordable housing processes? Because I, I think just recalling, like I think half of their loans were uh, capital cost, so lending against you know venture capital and private equity, and then a lot of their collateral was uh, you know more um, whole load yeah, mortgages, securities. yeah, mortgage securities, yeah, uh, yeah, whole load mortgages or securities, uh, agency mortgage backed securities, commercial mortgage backed securities, and stuff, and that was being pledged, right? Uh, yeah, so uh, Silicon Valley Bank was characterized more by mortgage backed securities uh, as collateral, and that we take that as well as you know uh, mortgages held as as collateral. So that's correct. Um, it's a great question. I don't know the answer to that question. I can say in absolute terms that the programs were sizable, but as a function of the overall size of the bank, uh, of all the things I thought to look up in advance, I didn't. I didn't look that up. I, I can look that up for you and send it to you. It's a. It's a. It's a good question. Um, the numbers were pretty big, but yeah, I, I don't know. I don't want to guess because I. I'd get it wrong, but I'll, I'll find that for you. Hey, just by by way of background. Uh, the, the federal home loan banks, each one of us set aside 10% of our earnings into affordable housing related programs. So the, their affordable housing program related grants or uh, through down payment assistance programs for, for home buyers. And, you know, that's, that's one piece of what we do. But the federal home loan banks do uh, well beyond just the 10% of, that we are required to set aside. We have a number of voluntary programs that we also do in support of our member institutions in the affordable housing space as well. And so to think about the, the net the network that we have in that way and, and how we support our mission in affordable housing is, is absolutely critical. So that's, a, th- that's the second piece of the mission. We, we spend a lot of time talking about the liquidity piece of the mission, but certainly our focus in affordable housing is also very critical and essential to, uh, to the communities across the United States. Michael, if I were to ask you, what drove the immense demand for federal home loan bank advances from from banks? I mean, I, there are many causes, but what what are in in your mind the top causes about why it you know went from five hundred billion to over a trillion? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it was a culmination of things. Um, certainly, during as mentioned before, during the run up in, in two thousand and twenty two, as the Fed started raising interest rates. Uh, because of the inflationary pressures. Uh, what we had seen is in our depository institutions, a lot of the deposits flowing out of, uh, out of the, the banking system in general and moving into money market funds in general. Uh, so we, we did see an exit of that, um, coupled with the fact that during the same time period, loan demand was also very strong as well. So our members had funding needs as, as well. And so during the course of 2022, you did see a buildup of, of additional demand for advances in general. And so that's that was the, the leading leading cause. Uh, certainly uh, during the during the uh, 
the crisis itself, what we had seen is significant outflows of, def- of deposits from uh, certain institutions, and that that exacerbated it. And those deposits going in from the banking space into money market funds. Why would banks? Uh, I'll fra- for phrase this question, which is. Federal home loan bank uh, funding of banks is typically like where the Fed, Fed funds rate is, your risk-free interest rates, plus a, a little bit of a spread. So why would a bank let deposits leave to go to a money market fund and then secure funding from the federal home loan bank at, you know, now what's now 5.6%, um, depending on you know, short-term financing, rather than just paying that deposit 5.6%? Yeah, I, I, I think in general, each... Each member institution may have their own uh, business philosophy, business business uh, needs, and so uh, that's that's at the discretion of the member institution. In general, what you what you'd see is as interest rates are rising, uh, member institutions may not increase their deposit rates at the same pace at which the Fed may be. Uh, raising interest rates, or as the long end of the curve may be going up, or what have you, and so what you see there is, um, in general, as, as rates are rising, uh, they they would earn additional margin. Accordingly, though, as as deposits are are flowing out, they would uh, redo their deposit studies and analysis, and and change rates accordingly, and and change the rates on their deposit base that they would have um, if deposits are leaving their institution. They have other avenues to uh, look at and obtain uh, deposits. Uh, they, they can look in the broker uh, CD market where they can obtain uh, deposits in that way to meet funding demands that they have. They also have the ability to uh, utilize the federal home loan banks in that regard. So that's, that's how they would have access to the federal home loan banks. It's also worth honing in on the technical point that you know depositors writ large you know, you might be trying to balance a term issue, right? So, so again, you know, the Federal Home Loan Bank has lots of different products available on, you know, similar terms to all of its members, and you can, you know, get an advance for short or medium term or longer term, and that helps you manage your liquidity. Whereas, Jack, to your point, you know, you can raise rates for depositors and draw them in, or you can perhaps, you know, do brokered CDs or CDs, but it is much more difficult to ascertain the duration of that liquidity or that deposit. And so, you know, we are one of many tools that well-run financial institutions will use to make sure that they're matching, you know, the certainty of their liquidity with their, you know, needs. And and that that optionality vis-a-vis the Federal Home Loan Bank isn't as easily available vis-a-vis depositors. And as you've mentioned several times on other, you know, sessions, you know, the deposit franchise of any given bank or credit union is the heart of its kind of operations typically. And, you know, when interest rates change so fast, there's going to be outcomes and effects to that. And so, you know, smart institutions need to deploy tools. And one of the most important tools they deploy is anything that helps them bridge the intermediate volatility of rates, right? Until they can, in fact, you know, reset expectations by depositors or, you know, get, you know, other capital in different terms. We're there for them so they can come to us and say, hey, I need you know, a two-year term on this. And it's market discipline, so it is market priced to your point, right? But again, they're super smart players as members and they're going to pick us when it's the right choice. We're just one of many choices. Yeah, so you said it's a market 
uh, priced for the the advance rate, it's market price. Tell us how that is. So the demand for advances, that is all banks and that's the market. But when it comes to the supply of advances, that that comes from the federal home loan bank. What uh, you know, when you when I look at let's say a spread of federal home loan bank advances over treasuries or risk-free interest rates. Um, you know, I, Michael, you can, I'm not going to make up a number because it's going to be wrong. So you can, you can provide us with a number. Is that because federal home loan banks are targeting our specific spread for, for profitability? Is it because, you know, if you were charging 200 basis points over, you know, uh, regulators would uh, uh, be, be angry? I mean, what, what is the driver of your demand to lend and, and set uh, at those advance rates? Yeah. So, um, it, it, going back to our, our model, we are a, a member-owned cooperative, right? And so part of philosophically, um, it, it's not our goal to profit off the backs of our member institutions itself. And so we have uh, deep access to the debt markets itself. And so we can go in and issue uh various types of debt to meet the, the member demands that are there, be it short-term, long-term, um, issue debt that has optionality, what have you. And that's really designed to, to meet the, the demands that our members have. And so when we price our advances, it's really priced based upon our funding that we have access to in the debt market. So we issue debt based upon what the market would command and, and, and they'll market participants purchase our debt and that's the price that we pay on the debt and uh, in turn charge a nominal uh, level um, uh, rate above that on the advances itself that our debt itself uh, trades at a spread above the treasury um, but yeah we, we but in turn pass along the funding advantage that we have to our member institutions and in turn the benefit to that is that they are able to provide uh, cheaper uh, funding and lending into the communities that they're they're serving and operating. I think there is a, I don't know if you're familiar with the University of Wisconsin paper that talked about the federal home loan banks and the, the uh, value that we provide. But in general, that, that funding advantage that we're able to pass along to our member institutions, I think in the paper itself talked about uh, an additional 130 billion in mortgage lending being done per annum, uh, to you know, by having access to the federal home loan bank, saving consumers, I think 17 billion per annum in interest rates. So that that really is hitting the benefit that that we are able to operate the funding advantage that we have into the communities across the United States. Yeah, the the ability of federal home loan banks to issue debt on a short term time horizon and to access cheap funding, so a low spread above treasuries, um, is immense. And we, we saw that in March, where you know, issued uh, 250, 400, 400 billion of uh, securities to, to fund those advances. Why do you think uh, the federal home loan banks have such a cheap cost of capital? And I'm going to you know read that federal home loan. I'm going to say it so you don't have to. That This is from the uh, FHFA, your, your regulator website. Uh, consolidated obligations of federal home loan banks are not guaranteed or insured by the federal government. However, the federal home loan bank status as a government-sponsored enterprise accords certain privileges and enables the federal home loan banks to raise funds at slightly above comparable obligations issued by the U.S. Department of the Treasury. So that is the implicit guarantee idea that if, if so, as you say, federal home loan bank never lost you know any any money on an advance. But if something were to happen, that the government does uh, would ultimately provide a 
a backstop to the to the Federal Home Loan Bank. Uh, Michael, during uh, March of 2020, I know the Treasury Department, um, as as well as the, the entire bond market, pretty much seized up, and you know it was trading tr- trading in even U.S. Treasuries, the most risk free uh, asset on the planet, was even wide, and the you know the Treasury was even having trouble uh, issuing some some longer term notes. Uh, what is the widest you've ever seen that Federal Home Loan Bank has ever had to issue a, a bond? And and what was that? For example, I think for Fannie Mae, it's like 100 basis points above of, above treasuries. What was you know a, a period of immense stress for the FHB if it wasn't March 2020? Another time. That I, I I don't know off the the top of my uh, top of my head what the spread level was in relation to the the debt that we that we had issued. Um, certainly back in the most recent. Crisis and, and certainly during the the week in March, where we had issued the level of debt that we had, had to issue, certainly the spreads that we had seen had widened out um, relative to what we had historically seen, and that's that's typical when we issue larger levels of debt in order to meet the liquidity demand. That's that's what the market bears in order to to purchase our our debt in the marketplace. So that's that's it's it's common to see our debt spreads widen out or contract. Uh, accordingly, uh, but the the widest level, I I don't know off off the top of my head of of what that is. I, I would say though that the debt that we issue, it's competitive in the, in the marketplace because that's we issue, we do debt auctions, we do other things. Um, that's what the market bears for the the debt that we issue. Um, certainly, there is a a, a government implicit guarantee uh, that is there. Um, but also there is a, a funding advantage that we provide back to our members that in turn provide that benefit back to consumers that are really able to, to see that benefit in lower mortgage, mortgage costs, lower, uh, lower loans and, and interest rates that they have to pay as well. So there is an advantage that our member institutions see. Got it. Dan, yeah, tell us about that implicit guarantee. If it's an implicit guarantee, why not make it explicit? Well, so there's a couple of reasons. Uh, so first, you, I, I'm going to put a finer point in your question, make it harder and maybe more aggressive, which is, all right. what does all this cost the taxpayer? Like, So if there's an implicit guarantee, isn't this costing somebody something? And who pays that bill and who's benefiting? So we described who benefited, right? As people are getting mortgages, people are buying houses, you know, it's and, and the financial system as a whole. So the government-sponsored enterprise status does have an implicit guarantee. Um, and you often see in materials recently that talk about the federal home loan bank system that there's a six billion dollar, some say five, some say you know seven billion dollar um, taxpayer subsidy to the system. So let me let me break that out into two parts. First, it's really important to understand and keep in mind that no part of the system of the federal home loan bank system is funded by taxpayer dollars. It is you know privately owned, privately operated. It's a cooperative. But then it has this GSE status. So it's getting two real benefits. Now, one, in the 80s, there was kind of a compromise made where, you know, resources from the banks would go to affordable housing. You know, the rough offset to that was they gave the banks uh, tax exempt status. So we don't pay income taxes, but we do this. That's that's somewhere between 500 and 900 million dollars of the number you hear when people say five, six, seven billion dollars. The rest of it is a computation of how much cheaper the debt is over time because of the GSE status. 
And I, I think I might be the only one who is obsessive compulsive enough to have read the string of 11 papers that go all the way back to the 80s and cite each other about how that works. And I just want to point out, it is clearly the case that there is some modest advantage. Is it one basis point, five basis points, 12 basis points, depending on the day and the term of the you know bond? Is that the benefit? It's hard to say, but it's not zero. It's definitely bigger than zero. So there's some benefit to the system. But here is the my number one goal for you, Jack, and for the, everyone who listens to the podcast to walk away with is the correct math for what that subsidy is. So if, in fact, the Federal Home Loan Bank system has bonds it offers and it gets them a little bit cheaper, who's paying for that subsidy? Investors. Investors, that's correct. So investors are getting slightly lower yield. But is there some sort of cost? There's no free lunch. And the answer is there is some modest actuarial cost. You have to estimate kind of like an insurance payment. You know, is what is the risk of some sort of catastrophic failure? And then after that failure, the government makes good on its implied guarantee. Like you follow that string all the way down. You say, what is that appropriate actuarial cost? And as it happens, the GAO did that kind of work in the 90s to figure out if they were going to expand the Brady Bill. So they have a whole methodology of doing it. And if you looked at it and you read the right papers all the way down, you realize that that cost is not borne by the taxpayers in nearly the amount of the subsidy. In fact, it's probably somewhere between 10 and $100 million a year because the federal home loan bank system has so many layers of protection that the probability of a bond default is so very, very low. It's kind of like paying for fire insurance if you had a metal house in the middle of the desert with nothing burnable around it. You could buy fire insurance and it'd probably be wise to do so nonetheless, but it's gonna be fantastically cheap. It's the insurance cost that is the subsidy. So by the way, the answer is we get to borrow a little bit more cheaply than we would because we're GSE, that's great. We're mainly borrowing at very low rates because we're an ironclad franchise that's been operating for 90 years, is backed by this cooperative structure and all these layers and has large pools of capital. And then we're jointly and severally liable. And so the right way to say, what does it cost the U.S. taxpayer? I think the correct math is to say, what's the tax exemption? How much goes into affordable housing? Okay, that nets out or so, perhaps. And then to say, what is the benefit to the taxpayer in the United States? A lot, right? Because the mortgage rates are lower. And then to say, what's the actuarial number you should assign? And it's a very low number. So we have convinced the bond markets, rationally, I think, to give the U.S. economy a 5 or $6 billion annual subsidy for purposes of its financial system by applying a GSE stamp onto this enterprise. That's why you don't want to make it formal. Why bother? You're getting all the benefit you want. Why, why, why tie the hands of government, even in the tiniest possibility? Why do you need to tie the hands of government? You don't. Yeah, that makes sense. I think uh, setting aside that the tax benefit and then affordable housing, I think the cost of uh, a government bailout so far has would be zero because there have been zero losses to the federal home, home loan banks and uh, zero you know, bailout of bond issuances. Like I'd say the cost of uh, the, the Fannie Mae implied guarantee was you know zero in 2007 until it you know became 200 200 billion. Now Federal Home Loan Bank, uh, you know Federal, Fannie Mae was was doing a, a lot of stuff that uh, I you know to, to my knowledge I don't well, think you're doing. The, so, but, the estimated cost for yeah. Fannie and Freddie were quite high actually, right? So you could go into the hedge fund market and get someone to guarantee it and say what would you price it at? That's the way to get the proxy, right? So that you're absolutely right. Like there's got to be some price that someone would pay for insurance, right? That doesn't exist in this story, but if you could do that, what would be that price? That's the 
that's the real price you should be identifying, right? Same way that the cost of your insurance for your house is not the replacement cost of your home. It's what you pay for it, right? There's somebody is absorbing that. And so I think that's the right way to do it. And Fannie and Freddie, again, it's important to distinguish. They were GSEs, but they were publicly traded companies, right? There was that public stock issue. They had comp that was allowed to be anything for their executives. There was just a lot of stuff going on there and they weren't jointly and severally liable. And the features of the federal home loan bank system, which predate all of that, right, are so much stronger because it's private capital completely. It's a co-op, which makes people responsible. It's got a stronger regulator now who's learned a lot of lessons. Not all of them applied, but learned a lot of lessons. And now you have this function that the global market, bond market, would signal if the mission of the Federal Home Loan Bank or its creditworthiness were at all awry. You would see you would see movements that don't correlate with the overall available credit globally, and you don't. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a it's so it's big enough that you can do a lot of empirical work and kind of look at it and discern all of that. Yeah, yeah, I would say that our our business model is vastly different than Fannie and and Freddie, and certainly the what what Dan had laid out our self capitalizing model itself affords us a lot of protection. The fact that we are secured lenders to our member institutions provide us a lot of protection. And, and the whole design of that is, and we are unique in how we're designed by Congress. We have a very strong regulator. We have, you know, operate with a, a significant amount of regulations and oversight in, in order to ensure that we are uh, managing the credit risk market risk, operational risk appropriately. And so the amount of risk taking that we can actually take on relative to Fannie and Freddie, vastly different. And so if you overlay all of those protections, uh, we really provide a, a level of, of safety uh, that, you know, the likes of Fannie and Freddie uh, didn't have uh, leading up to their, their crisis. And, and so vastly different as far as uh, GSEs. How is it possible that federal home loan banks have never lost a dime by lending their advances to banks? You know, I understand lending against mortgages and, and securities at a seventy percent haircut, eighty percent haircut. That is, you know, can can be a safe business model if the collateral is safe. But you know, across all the you know many many years of doing business during two thousand seven and eight and nine, what is it just about that uh, federal home loan bank? And I guess I, I suppose I'm asking what is called the, the super lien that is just you know made it. Uh, uh, really protected the federal home loan bank from from losing money. Yeah, and I wouldn't I wouldn't define it as as the super lien. I, I would look at it as what are the requirements that we are um, supposed to have in place, and we are a secured lender. And so the the first thing that we have to do in order for our members to pledge collateral to the federal home loan bank, if they're pledging mortgage loan collateral, uh, home equity loans, commercial real estate. We have to file UCC filings to ensure that we are the primary uh, uh, secured uh, party associated with that loan collateral. So we are uh, first priority, first lien priority in relation to that. That is no different than any other secured lender that is in the marketplace. And so if another institution wanted to be, you know, lend to another party, they would secure their interest in that loan collateral. We operate no differently. We maybe operate at a different scale, but we operate no differently than any other secured lender. That protects uh, the, the federal home loan banks itself. 
In addition to that, we go through a robust process, each one of us, in marking to market the loan collateral that uh, members pledge to us and ensuring that we are providing a value associated with that collateral so that we are not taking undue risk in relation to what they're providing to us. In addition, uh, we look at haircuts that we would apply so that if we had to liquidate the collateral, we would be made whole because it's important that we are protecting the cooperative as a whole. And as Dan talked about being jointly and severally liable, we want to ensure that our shareholders, member shareholders, are protected against any sort of loss. We're not taking undue risk. In addition, we don't want to create risk that would be a problem within the federal home loan bank system. Because one of the one of the biggest values that, that we have or one of the biggest assets is our ability to access the debt markets. And that's that's very important because it's critical that we meet the member liquidity needs in the marketplace, both in calm times as well as in stressful times. So we need to ensure that we are protecting our member shareholders in relation to that. And so the last thing that we would do is uh, take delivery or possession of that collateral. Um, certainly for security collateral, we do take possession uh, and it's delivered through to custodians. But all of that provides the protection to ensure that we're not taking uh, losses on the advances that our members uh, take from the federal home loan banks. Right, Michael Beckel. So there are a lot of hedge funds and investment vehicles that say they are doing super safe lending, uh, collateralized lending, and that it's basically impossible for them to, to lose money. As you know, a lot of institutions that say that it's impossible for them to lose money, you know, sometimes they do end up uh, losing money. So why is it that the federal home loan bank uh, track record actually is better than some of those people who you know, claim to do that. Is it because they are taking risks that you are not? Uh, yes, in short. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. We don't have a profit incentive, right? So, so all that we have is the cooperative incentive. And certainly, you know, our members who have to put capital in and every time they get an advance, they have to put more capital in. That's what we mean by self-capitalizing. You know, they, they have a strong interest in making sure, A, we run well so their capital isn't lost if something went wrong. And secondly, the, the returns on all of this activity. So a portion goes to affordable housing, a portion goes to building up more capital reserves, and then there's a dividend opportunity, right? But if you have a grouping of 100 or 200 or 500 sophisticated financial institutions who are cooperative members, that is one of the strongest self-regulating structures you could provide because they're going to be asking hard questions. They don't want to put at risk any of their capital. So it's so different from most other systems. And, and I, I do want to go back to this idea of the super lien. Just say it one more time because Michael explained it perfectly. And maybe I should be glib and explain it in short, which is the law is what requires us to get a perfected security interest. Now, when people say we have a security interest, sometimes they mean they have claim to some assets. Sometimes they mean they have a promise that they'll get the claim. Like, but when we say perfected security interest, we validated the collateral, we priced it, we provide our own haircuts, and then we do a UCC filing, and we also possess it, you know, at a certain moment in time under certain circumstances. And that perfected security interest, it, any lender could engage in that level of effort and you know work many don't right but that's that's the lean like that's a if you have a perfected security interest you're going to get access to that collateral if everything goes south that's at the heart of our stability and 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 as a corollary therefore we do not cost the fdic extra money and i know it's one of the most common things that comes out and my one observation would be 
only ask current FDIC officials that question and you will get a very specific answer, right? You know, and, and we've got some good examples, congressional testimonies and the like recently where, you know, FDIC chairman, you know, Grunberg, when he was testifying most recently said very explicitly, he's like, well, it's, I'm paraphrasing, you know, thank goodness for the federal home loan bank system, right? They provide liquidity while members, you know, endure or work out situations. Their members rely on them for advances to strengthen their liquidity position, you know, and we should destigmatize that. He was also referring to the Fed, you know, and, and he spoke very positively about the role. And I think that's a big part of it, even in the most dramatic part of the last six months, where if, if you want to say what costs the FDIC money, lack of time. If the FDIC doesn't have time at all to resolve something, then you have a fire sale of assets. You can't find buyers. You get like that's that's a much harder story. And arguably, you get less for what you have in an institution that's either being wound up or has failed or needs to be sold. And and we play one part of that. There's other liquidity providers, but if we play a role in that, we help save them money, if anything. But we certainly don't cost the FDIC money. Yeah. With that being said, we are working closely with our members' primary regulators, in this case, as an example, the FDIC, so that there isn't this distress sale. There is an orderly liquidation, an orderly sale of the member institution so that there's not this distress in collateral or that it would put a, a stress on the deposit insurance fund. Right. And Dan, that argument that you just laid out did make sense. So uh, so the, the argument that it does cost money, I'll just say for the audience who might not know what, what we're talking about, is that because, uh, sorry, Michael, I know you, what is called the super lien uh, is so robust that when a bank fails and the FDIC has to claim that the, the Federal Home Loan Bank is a very senior creditor and the amount that is paid to the Federal Home Loan Bank, that, that uh, equates to the losses of the FDIC. Um, so and so, Dan, you you made an argument that uh, makes sense to me. I would just say that though, you know, instant when uh, it's it's not just people, um, the the FDIC uh, of people who leave the office say things that are different. For example, you know, Federal Reserve uh, uh, chairs and governors now, you know, when they're in office, they you know never even say that they are quote monetizing the U.S. debt. But sometimes when they leave, they you know can get a little more. Um, willing to say that, but your argument makes a lot of sense. Yeah, but to your point, I think there is no record ever of the Federal Home Loan Bank in a resolution situation, you know, somehow drawing from other creditors' assets to satisfy its advances. I actually, I actually don't think that story exists. Before we hopped on the phone, I got on the phone to make sure nothing had changed and <laughs> make sure that was true. And, and, and again, I think what you might be referring to, and it's worth clarifying, so first, the collateral, just like any, we, we have absolute priority in the collateral that we have as our security. Full stop. But anyone could have that for their own collateral if they did what we did. So that's important to know. But the part where maybe people say, oh, go, it costs more is there's a, and this speaks to the risk, you know, diminishing role of the federal home loan banks. If, if we were taking those risks that you mentioned when people say, oh, we're secure, we do this, but they still have risks. One of the things we do behind the scenes is we hedge out any of the risk we can related to duration. You know, we're going to the bond market, we're getting capital, we're lending it to our, our own members. And so we make sure that we've minimized any of the risk with duration mismatches and other typical finance functions. Those And that uses up a lot of capital. It's why we're not a hedge fund. Like you, there's no profit. We're using up all that profit to de-risk things. If you need to prepay in advance, 
then there is oftentimes a prepayment penalty, which is really just the cost of unwinding all of those hedges. Right. And, and so that, that, that I think this is my, it's just my personal theory, not the view of the bank is, is that when the FDIC says, oh, that, you know, the, the federal home loan bank system costs, costs us money, what they might mean, because there's no evidence of the other thing you described ever, what they might mean is that in the case of resolving something, if you have the advances sitting there and there's plenty of collateral, but you want to pay them off, if you pay them off early, there's going to be an extra prepayment penalty associated with that. Um, but this would be the case in almost any market transaction. And that penalty isn't some sort of like grab at money. It is literally the unwinding of all of these hedging and other derivative instruments that were designed to make that whole process less risky. And so sorry to go on about it, but it's, it's one of the it's one things that drives me a little crazy. We do such a good job of de-risking all of this stuff and trying to be really, because these are co-op members, right? Like these are co-owners. We don't want to treat them badly. And then I think people misunderstand that last part. Yeah, well, I, I you know, having looked a little, a little bit through you know, various uh, federal home loan bank uh, balance sheets and what they have, I, I see what you mean about those hedges. Uh, is it surprising to you, as it has been to the general investing public, the degree to which so many banks, or I should say, uh, a, a few banks, were so caught so off guard by the rise in interest rates, you know, 550, 525 basis point um, uh, in- increase that, you know, the Federal Home Loan Bank hedges, a lot of real estate firms hedges, but, so, you know, some banks like Silicon Valley Bank, uh, basically had effectively no no hedges at all. And there, there are other examples of, of that. Uh, I mean, did, was that a surprise to you, to you Michael? And how uh, big of a problem do you think this is going forward? Uh, well, I, I, I can't speak to the, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank failure or uh, First Republic or what have you. But um, in, in general, I think that by and large, the majority of, of financial institutions that are members of the federal home loan banks um, have managed through this process very well. I, I do know that there are certainly uh, more stress within the, the regional banks across the United States. And, um, and, and I think things are starting to, to stabilize from where we had been in March. Um, you know, in general, a run up in, in interest rates that this high, it certainly uh, caught off, caught a lot of people off guard. Uh, but I think that right now what we are seeing with, with our member institutions, depository institutions, deposit outflows have started to uh, certainly have stabilized. The loan demand has started to, to come down. So there is a normalizing effect that you would expect to see um, in this type of a cycle. So um, hopefully as we go forward, uh, the, the liquidity issues, liquidity challenges, I think that has, has uh, calmed down quite a bit. A lot of the federal home loan banks rely on uh, callable debt. So they issue debt that if, if interest rates go down, the federal home loans bank can, can refinance. Uh, Michael, could you speak to that as, uh, as a uh, role in federal home loan banks managing their own interest rate risk? Uh, yeah, so so the federal home loan banks will use callable debt in, in, in various ways. Um, it, as far as our own debt issuance, what we do is is transform what demand may be in the marketplace for our debt 
and, and translate that back into uh, funding to our, our member institutions. So in general, if we're issuing callable debt, uh, we will uh, swap the callable debt um, accordingly. So just convert the callable debt into a floating rate SOFR uh, one month, three months SOFR related instrument. And that funding, uh, we would pass along that funding to our members and the advances that we would issue. So that's one form in which we do that. So transforming what the investor demand is in the marketplace to meet the, the member demand. The other is we'll issue callable debt um, to hedge what we would have is our own mortgage portfolio. And so we, uh, as federal home loan banks, we participate in uh, various mortgage programs. So the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago has the Mortgage Partnership Finance Program where we purchase mortgage loans that our member institutions originate. We will hold those loans on our balance sheet and ensure, and in turn uh, pay our member institutions the, uh, the credit uh, risk. As we share in the credit risk associated with those loans, we would pay them a credit enhancement fee. So our members would earn uh, credit enhancement for the loans that they would originate and that we hold on our balance sheet. And we would hedge that uh, debt or hedge the mortgage loans with callable debt. So if the mortgage loans prepay, we would be able to call that debt accordingly. But this is a way in which we manage the interest rate risk associated with uh, the portfolio of assets that we would have. So it's a dynamic way in which we manage um, our, our, our balance sheet and and uh, ensure that we are uh, operating in a safe and sound manner. So when you think about some of the risks that we have to manage, that's a way in which we're managing our market risk exposure. If you take a lens out on that a little bit, I think, and, and Jack, you speak to more financial players of a wider variety than anybody I know. So there's almost a check against your intuition on this. I don't think there's any other sizable player in the marketplace that's engaged in simultaneously drawing capital from the global markets, engaging in sophisticated hedging to de-risk the, in turn, loaning of that capital to financial players, where everyone's interests are kind of lined up, right? It's private capital, you know, there's members of that co-op, you know, there's not tens of thousands, there's hundreds, sometimes a thousand if they're lost small banks, and essentially providing this liquidity function that's market priced and driven, and relatively speaking, you know, de-risked. There's just no other substitute for that. And the Federal Home Loan Bank is so unusually unique in that sense, right? And, and and in turn, it means you get the support for small banks, for regional banks, and support for, you know, housing. And we, we didn't get a chance to talk a lot about that, but, you know, the housing is direct and indirect. If you support the mortgage market directly and indirectly, you improve, you know, financing availability. And that Wisconsin paper, you know, shows it drives down borrowing costs. On the other hand, you know, directly funding innovative programs for down payment assistance and for overall affordable housing and for the building of affordable housing, you know, you actually make a dent in what is a terrible environment right now for affordable housing. And, and that's always my question to people who kind of say, gosh, Federal Home Loan Bank been around a long time. You know, should we get rid of them? Should we make them a lot smaller? And, and I, I tend to say, if you can find me a system that doesn't put the tab at the foot of the taxpayer directly, and still has kind of market discipline involved in it, I, I, I'm all ears, right? Like the Federal Home Loan Bank is hardly perfect, but I, I don't think anyone has effectively come up with something that can provide this liquidity, support of small and regional banks and provide this you know, support to the housing finance universe of the United States. 
all while drawing a subsidy from global you know, lenders, which I love, right? So it's kind of the one free lunch in the American people's uh, taxpayer pocket. So that, that's often my big question is like, what would you do differently? And there's a lot of little things to do for sure. But, um, you know, beyond that, I don't know. Dan, could you tell us more about what, what Michael called, and correct me if I'm using the wrong phrase, the self-financing mechanism of the Federal Home Loan Bank, where when it needs to uh, issue advances, I guess new uh, new uh, banks who want to borrow have to buy new Federal Home Loan Bank. But and then, and then also, I, I may ask, like, if a certain bank wants to borrow more, they have to buy that stock. But wouldn't they be borrowing more than they're buying? So it's kind of a, you know, they're, they're, they're borrowing money to buy that stock. Yeah. So a, a couple things. Um, so first, he's re- referencing kind of self-capitalizing, which is to say the member institutions, when they do increase their advances, have to put up more uh, you know, ownership stock at par value. So it ensures kind of a consistency of incentives and it does provide capital to the Federal Home Loan Bank itself. It is worth noting that the Federal Home Loan Banks also build capital in a lot of other ways. For the San Francisco Bank, for example, we have very substantial retained earnings. And it was it was the only thing that almost prompted me to email Catherine Judge, who you know was at Stanford Law School while I was teaching. And I said, "Wait, you you used a phrase that essentially said hoarding capital. You can't say there's risk to the system, and these folks have a lot of capital, right? So capital solves so many things. So they have lots of ways to build up capital. But to to your point." Then when advances occur, we have as a regulated entity, the Federal Home Loan Banks, you know, capital ratio requirements and, you know, all the, and you can look this up, you know, directly in our filings, that capital reserve is, you know, in in essence, the last line of defense against all the other things that we described where we have tremendous capital buffer. So the self-capitalizing is specifically members put in more capital when they get advances, but that capital is coming from a lot of places. And again, back to the nature of a private co-op as opposed to a publicly traded company that has a stock price that goes up and down and your executives make more because they have capital at the stock price source. We don't have any of that. Our cooperative members want us to pay an appropriate dividend, but they want us to have plenty of capital because they want to be able to show up and access the advances. It is a very elegant balanced system. The problem therefore, is it's difficult to explain in less than a couple hours, which you know just doesn't sell in the modern economy. Just about that capital stock, yeah. What are the dividends that uh, the Federal Home Loan Bank pays pays out? So it's the the bank, the shareholders, the, uh, the member banks that own it. But then I also know that it is often, but not always, the case that the largest banks are the largest shareholders. Uh, for example, you know, Michael in, in Chicago, I believe there are uh, one or two banks that are actually own more stock than. Uh, JP Morgan and JP Morgan's, you know, uh, the biggest bank I think in, in America. Um, so, so wh- why might a bank, a smaller bank, own more equity in an FLJB than a bigger bank? It's just an asset size issue, and that's a, it's a great question because if you're going to say, hey, could this be gamed? Like, could someone abuse this? What would go wrong? One of the things you would want to absolutely be sure you did is create a law that says every member of the co-op has to be equally and fairly treated in light of standard observed common practices. And that's actually the law. And then there's a bunch of regulations around that. And then the regulator pays a lot of attention to that. What you're seeing though, and I'll tell you the huge advantage of the Federal Home Loan Bank system for this and, and the Wells Fargo's and the JP Morgan's and the B of A's, I hope they forgive me for saying this. And I mean it in a genuinely positive way. So the, the, what you're seeing is the relative huge capital size, right? The GSIP problem is a separate own problem. We are fighting the good fight because we help support local and regional banks, but they're very, very big. And so, 
their asset availability, their collateral available to pledge, they're being treated equally as all the small players. It's just that they're so much bigger. So if you look at proportions, they're under their practical proportions. But because we're self-capitalizing, if you're going to post that collateral, you're going to take an advance and it's medium to big, you're going to buy in a bunch more stock. That's why they have that, right? But what protects everybody else is this hard and fast rule that everyone has to be given you know, the same reasonable treatment. What I mean by that is if you're a strong regional bank and you're one one hundredth the size of B of A, but you're strong, your collateral is great, you're going to get the same terms, right? Now, if you're a tiny little bank and you, know, you haven't been around long, you might get different terms, but they're going to be treated fairly deeply. So here's the secret. These big banks, they provide a lot of activity for the federal home loan banks. They're obviously low risk. That revenue, that profit flows into the system. A big chunk of that goes to affordable housing. If you got rid of all the big banks, affordable housing allocations would go way down because the system would be a lot smaller. The profits would be a lot smaller. In addition, you also create the co-op opportunity, which is you are able to support these smaller and mid-sized banks that just wouldn't have a system or enough capital flowing around to be supported. So the dividends get paid out and they're very transparent. You know, there's, there's a, you know, there's profits. You don't pay out, you, we, we can't borrow to pay out dividends. None of the crazy stuff that you see in publicly traded companies, you know, and again, speaking for San Francisco, there's guidance, it's between a range. It's actually quite reasonable because here's the final point, it's a little technical. They can't ever get an appreciation on the stock value because it is by law and by our own rules, you know, paid in at par and bought out at par. In other words, if it's a dollar in 25 years, you're going to get a dollar. And so the only flow from that stock is the dividend. And so once you consider that and you look at our dividend rates, they're pretty conservative. Uh, and you do and so need to what, what are the, the dividend rates? And also, are they variable when you know, you're know you doing a lot of business, they're higher, and in 2021, when the demand for advances was lower, it was lower? Was that- yeah, it, it's, it's, a public, it's actually uh, submitted in all the quarterly returns. The banks are different. They, they vary a little bit. You know, a, a low dividend would be 4%. That's really low these days, right? Yeah, yeah. A high dividend might be 7 8 9%. That's reasonable and tight in terms of this type of capital, I think. Um, and then some banks pay slightly different dividend rates for members who have paid in their capital are members but aren't active. They don't actually take a lot of advances and others that do take advances is kind of a fairness thing in a way. So it varies, but you know, it ranges. And Mike, Michael can comment on that, but the dividends are actually considered, you know, steady, stable, and quite, quite market-driven, quite fair in my experience. Yeah, yeah. If you want to look at the capital structure, the capital stock structure of each of the individual federal home loan banks, I would say each each one of us have our own separate capital plan that we've gotten approved by our member institutions. And so, uh, typically, you have a member stock component, and you have an activity stock component. And so, uh, and I'll speak in relation to Chicago, for example, members, when they join the Federal Home Loan Bank, as they join the cooperative, they have to purchase membership stock. And that's going to be for Chicago uh, based upon the level of mortgage-related assets that they hold on their balance sheet. And we compute that on an annual basis. There is a recalculation. All the Federal Home Loan Banks have to do an annual recalculation of how much capital stock a member institution should be holding. That becomes their their member activity. To the extent that members borrow 
beyond the member activity stock level, that's when they would have to purchase activity stock. These these would vary. In, in general, that's the, the general uh, premise. Each, each bank would have a different type of a capital plan. Um, so you'd have to see the nuances between the individual banks. From a Chicago bank perspective, we look at the activity stock, uh, the members that engage with the Federal Home Loan Bank, because we're here to, to support our member institutions. We want to ensure that the activity that they do with the bank, they have a higher dividend associated with the activity. Uh, for just membership stock, the dividend rate would be lower um, uh, accordingly. So, but it all varies. And, and Dan pointed out the ranges between 4% and 9% um, in general uh, across the federal home loan bank system. And if you think about where mortgage rates are uh, currently, mortgage rates are around 7, 7% or so. So the dividend related to the, the, you know, the activities in which our members engage in, it's, it's comparable to a mortgage loan and, and also to Dan's point, it's, a, it's an excellent point, is that the stock, when Congress created the Federal Home Loan Banks back in 1932, they said the stock would be valued at par value at $100 per share, and the stock today is still worth $100 per share. That's a good point, and that, that really adds up, you know, because most stocks, if you bought them at $100 in 1932, would uh, be, be a heck of a lot uh, worth more. So, Michael, I've got a question. So, uh, I think all of the banks that have had issues and are, you know, are, are no more, I think n- none of them were in the Chicago district. They were in the, the San Francisco district. A lot of them were in the San Francisco district. But going forward, is there more, do you think there might be or are you seeing more resistance uh, from the FDIC or the Federal Reserve or the FHFA for federal home loan banks to lend to banks that are not necessarily in the business of your traditional uh, you know, uh, uh, borrow short and make long-term 30-year their mortgage rates. Yes, you know, uh, Silicon Valley Bank it had a lot of uh, agency mortgage-backed securities, but uh, I mean, you know, they were they were um, they, they were they were they were not that. I mean, they made a lot of venture capital and private equity loans, and, and likewise, it was Silvergate. A lot of their assets were agency mortgage-backed securities and whole loan mortgages, but they were deposited from crypto companies. I mean, I, you know, I mean, obviously, crypto did not exist in 1932 when uh, when the, when the uh, federal home loan was created. But do you think there are you seeing more resistance uh, to those sorts of activities? Because there is a little bit of pushback, at least in the the public sphere. Yeah, I, I think it's important to to keep in mind of it. Is the Federal Home Loan Bank staying true to its mission of providing funding and liquidity to our member institutions? And and we are. And so to the extent that our members are pledging uh, mission-oriented collateral to to the banks themselves, the mission-oriented collateral being mortgage loans, home equity loans, commercial real estate, mortgage-backed securities, et cetera, to the extent that our member institutions are are pledging that collateral and, and need liquidity from the banks, we're certainly going to continue to provide liquidity to our member institutions. So there's there's no pushback in relation to that. I, I would say that you know one of the things that we are very much focused on is our support for community investment related activities and ensuring that the advances that we provide to our member institutions. And you know by and large, I can say for Chicago, we have a number of community financial institutions in rural Illinois, rural Wisconsin, beyond just the city of Chicago or, or Milwaukee or Madison. Uh, we are providing a cr- critical uh, source of funding and liquidity to those 
members and they are doing loans in their community to support the communities. And I think that that element is oftentimes lost in the, the whole discussion. That is absolutely critical in providing that funding and liquidity uh, to the communities across the United States. And we're no different than some of the other federal home loan banks and, and the other districts. But, you know, that's a that's a critical role that we play. And, and certainly there has been no pushback on that. And what we are hearing is that we need to be doing more to support community investment and affordable housing. And the federal home loan banks have committed to doing to doing more. Uh, we've talked about uh, 10% of our earnings getting set aside. You know, I can say in, in Chicago, we do abundantly more than 10% uh, through voluntary programs, through other advances related activities and, and other, and we have a community first fund as well, where we provide uh, funding and support to uh, CDFIs in our district. So it's, it's really robust in what we're doing, but that's where we're getting uh, more and more feedback. Uh, Dan, my final question is for you. I know the uh, regulator, the uh, uh, FHFA, is considering recommending curbs on advances to big banks. I think there's a, a review that they are working on that may come out uh, in September. What do you think is that they might recommend, and uh, do you would you support or oppose those? I wish I knew the answer to that question because we've heard you know similar rumors, and and certainly that came up a lot in the discussions. I'll tell you what I think is the right way to look at it and what I hope might happen. And I think that's the best I can do because I really don't know what they're what they're going to say or propose. You know, if if it's an issue of total risk for the federal home loan banks, in other words, part of their observation is, you know, we want you to be more thoughtful about your portfolio of advances, regardless of who they come from, and you know, be even more cautious than you already are. I, I'm okay in terms of the federal home loan bank system taking its riskiness from very, very low to even lower if that's the desire of the of the regulator. And there's several ways to do that. And maybe one way is to think carefully about ratios of total advances. But here's what I think might be coming of it and in my view would be better. And that is to ask the question and to maybe put a better way of double checking this in place. Is it the case that, you know, similarly situated, if perhaps smaller banks have equal access to the benefits of being a cooperative member of the federal home loan bank? If the answer to that is no, it's not the case. The big players take advantage and they get more and practically they get all this and it comes at the expense of smaller players. Well, then something has to be done and we need to modify how we operate. But I will tell you that all the evidence points to the reality that the advances and the benefits of being a co-op member are shared equally across all the members, regardless of size. And so what I hope that the agency does is raise the problem because people spoke about the risk of this problem, oftentimes without really citing what it was. I mean, Jack, you'll agree, I think people just don't like really big banks. Right. They don't they, they're not flattering about them. They assume something nefarious is going on. And I, I don't even need to speak to that. I think instead, if the question is, we wonder if the big banks are getting a fair shake or getting too good of an arrangement. If that's the question, let's put in place some double checks to be sure that isn't happening. If it is happening, then we have a remedy. I would so much prefer that than shrinking the whole system and have the you know, Chicago and San Francisco, and it's really more like 15%, 10% mandatory, and we're well above 15% contributions to affordable housing and all of our work shrink accordingly. That would be kind of like shooting yourself in the foot because you worried about a problem that may not be manifest. That's a long way of saying, I don't know what they're going to say. If they raise a problem, I think we should look into it. 
We should verify if it is or isn't happening. If it is happening, we should fix it and we should move on. I don't like binary solutions. I worry about X. Let's amputate your leg. It looks like you have a toe problem. This is a bad way to do policy. So I don't know what they're going to go out. And I know a couple of people who will now have listened to this probably <laughs> eventually and uh, feel free to bug me about my view. Okay. I, I would just say that um, I, I think that's more rumor than uh, probably reality. I, I do think that um, all of the members that have access to the Federal Home Loan Bank, they all play a, a very critical role in housing and housing finance in the in the United States. And I think that if there is any action that, that would need to be taken in relation to who should have access or not, that's the role of Congress to play. Um, and so each, each one of our member institutions today uh, certainly play a, a key role uh, for the federal home loan bank system and, and housing finance in the in the United States. You uh, had a, a role as the chief risk officer for uh, for the federal home loan bank. Um, what are the, the chief risks that a chief risk officer can, uh, should be aware of and is working to mitigate? Well, I, I think we've we've actually in the conversation today covered a lot of the key risks that that I would be focused on. the The, the first and, and foremost that comes to mind is ensuring that the federal home loan bank system protects the debt franchise that it has. And the debt franchise is critically important because that allows us to provide the funding and liquidity that our member institutions expect from the federal home loan banks itself. And so ensuring that we are uh, doing things to protect the safety and soundness of the of the system is is vitally important. And I think we do an excellent job in relation to that. The other, the other areas of, of risk that certainly we would focus on is certainly in the market risk, where we spend quite a bit of time looking at what is the market risk exposure of the federal home loan banks, how do we manage the market risk and liquidity risk that we would have, and ensuring that we hold liquidity to meet the demands of our member institutions. We have a, a number of robust uh, frameworks in place in order to manage that. We spent quite a bit of time in how do we manage the credit risk, certainly the member credit risk exposures in the Federal Home Loan Bank. What do we do to protect the risks associated with that? Uh, certainly, we have uh, robust practices to monitor unsecured uh, counterparty exposure risks as well. That's something that, that we are also keenly aware of and, and manage very tightly across the Federal Home Loan Bank system. And the last area that I would, I would say is a, a big focus of ours is the operational risks. And each one of us uh, manage very complex financial institutions. And we need to ensure that we have robust practices in place to, to manage the operational risk, the cybersecurity risk, the model risk that we have embedded in each one of our organizations and certainly have the resources in place in order to manage that. So I, I would say those are the, the main areas that I would focus on. And I think the federal home loan banks do an excellent job in managing all of those risk exposures. Michael and Dan, thank you so much for, for joining me, and thank you, everyone, for watching. Thanks. Thanks, Jack. Take care.